0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Gina Davis, knew she wanted to be an actor pretty much her whole life. When she plucked up the courage to tell her parents her plan,
2: they were surprisingly cool with it. When I said I want to major in acting at at BU, they were like, oh, okay. As if I'd said something you could get a job in, you know, and then... When I eventually did get a job, my first job was in Tootsie. It was my first audition, even. I, I remember I came home to visit, and my mom and the neighbor were talking. My, my best friend's mother were talking, and she was saying, I can't believe it. Nobody can believe it. This is crazy. And my mom said, What she studied acting in college. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess that's how it works. It's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk to Gina Davis. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media looks at how to combat stereotypes and achieve gender balance in movies and TV. That's something Gina's been working toward for 14 years now. The campaign even includes movie nights
2: at home. There have been times when I start to lean over, my daughter's now 14, when I lean over to say something, and she says, I know. I noticed not enough girls. I saw that right away. So. <laughs> She and I will talk about working in film, making
1: yourself heard, and getting into archery. Then Jack Handy, the writer, humorist, and king of absurd one-liners. He wrote Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live. He told me that the key to becoming a comedy writer is finding your
0: voice.
3: My stuff on Saturday Night Live is usually... Uh, little boy oriented stuff, then that's sort of what I still write I mean about <laughs> about dinosaurs and cowboys and monsters and things like that
1: plus I'll tell you about the website I've been checking back in on for nearly 20 years. It is not a useful website it's all coming up on bullseye let's go it's bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne. We're sharing with you some of our favorite bullseye interviews of the past. First up, Gina Davis. When Gina Davis starred in Thelma and Louise, it looked like her breakthrough. Oscar nominations, huge box office, had to be the start of a trend, right? Finally, women could star in buddy movies? But it didn't work out that way. Same thing happened when she starred in A League of Their Own. Acclaim, box office smash, but no more female sports movies. When her first daughter was a young child... Davis started wondering how many women were in the kids' shows she was seeing. She started the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media to find out. The results of that first study were discouraging, and so were the results of the second. The Institute's been studying the sexism in entertainment for 14 years now, first at USC's Annenberg School of Communication, now at Mount St. Mary's University in L.A. When we talked in 2016, the Institute had found representation increasing in film and TV, but if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you know that the call for inclusion has only gotten stronger. Anyway, here's my interview with Gina Davis. Gina Davis, uh, it is great to have you on the show. Welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. Um, so, uh, well, let's start Let's start by talking about the Institute, and we'll get into your career later. But... Um, you're clearly a person who uh, goes into things whole hog, right. as evidenced by the fact that you uh, once almost became an Olympic archer. <laughs> but um, and we're definitely going to talk about that. Okay. But uh, w- what led you into this work in such a sort of
2: broad and deep way? Well, uh, it is a tendency of mine to go too far with everything, but uh, and I but I didn't intend to with this in the beginning. Uh, after I noticed how bereft of a female presence kids' entertainment seemed to be, I just started asking people about it. I asked my friends, you know, if they noticed that the movie that just came out had only one female character in it. After the mother dies gruesomely, of course, in the first <laughs> five minutes, and uh, none of them noticed. So I thought, well, you know, I'm in the industry. I meet a bunch of people. I'll just ask people about it and see what the uh, the thinking is. And uh, so if I had a meeting with a studio executive or producer or director or whatever, I'd say, uh, have you ever noticed how few female characters there are in G and PG rated movies? And every single person I asked said, no, that's not true anymore. That's not a problem anymore. And uh, they were very – sincere about it and actually passionate about it. They weren't saying, eh, it's not a big deal. They said, we care about that here. We work on it. We talk about it all the time. And we made, and they would name a movie with one female character as proof that gender inequality had been fixed. So this was very striking to me that the people creating this stuff had no idea how few female characters there were. So that's what made me think, Maybe if I had the numbers, it would make a difference, and that started the whole thing.
1: I mean, it is something that uh, I think, you know, because of a combination of uh, sexist society and my own male privilege, (laughs) uh, it's easy for me not to think of. But if I think of uh, the, you know, the movies that my sons watch, I mean, like, Toy Story is a beautiful, fantastic movie. Absolutely. Uh, Like a real, genuine four-star movie. Uh, But, like, it's like Bo Peep. Um, Keep going. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: like they added one or two more. There's Barbie. <laughs> I don't think they added her till later. But anyway, um, it, it is kind of a terrifying thing. Was it something that you had thought about in your own work prior to having that realization
2: about the stuff your daughter was watching? Well. I was certainly aware that there were fewer really great parts for women. Uh, But I think anybody, if you ask them, are there fewer starring roles for women? I think your average moviegover would say, well, yeah, it seems so. Um, But, uh, but, uh, you know, certainly in the earlier days, I was getting a lot of really great parts. And uh, my whole impression was things are getting better. And then, like you said, that thing happened with – Thumb and Louise and League of Their Own, and I thought, oh, well, yeah, now everything's getting fixed, and it's all good. And uh, it took me a while to realize, uh, quite a while to realize that things weren't getting better, because part of it is you expect things to get better, but part of it is the press kept saying, now things are better. When there was a movie that struck it big starring women, like I remember when First Wives Club came out. Oh, this fixes everything. Now fifty-year-old women can lead movies and whatever, and you sort of buy it. Uh, so it took a while until I started saying. Interviewers always wanted to know. Are things getting better for women? And I said, like, well, it seems like it. You know, it took me a while to say, I don't know. You know, Google it. Find out. I Were
1: you know. usually answering interviews in like the voice of a, a, like a cornpone guy in overalls?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's a weird impression of myself, right? <laughs> kind of, oh, shucks, Ernest. Yeah, yeah I think
1: so. Um, One of the most interesting things about the studies that the Institute has done um, and one that really took my breath away when I first heard about it when it came out a couple of years ago was a study of the gender distribution in crowd scenes. Mm, mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that
2: <laughs> well it's it's bad in speaking characters it's a It's a really bad ratio but um in crowd scenes uh particularly in animated movies there it, it's far worse than the speaking characters um in some uh, animated movies, the crowd scenes are only seventeen uh, percent female characters, oh, that's which a, is what absurd. It's like what <laughs> I know. It's really inexplicable. So in fiction, in create, I mean, especially stuff for kids, uh, it's all invented. You know, outer space colonies or underwater kingdoms or whatever, and uh, the female population. Could be that low. I, I don't know how to explain it except uh, my theory is that uh, Hollywood writers think women don't gather. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, mean, I think what it what it really speaks to is that it is a fundamental structural issue. That it's not necessarily about malevolent actors. Not at all. Uh, and I don't mean actors as in actors doing acting, but people doing things. It's right. not about malevolent people. Right. It's about. Uh, A fundamental problem where, you know, even something as neutral as a crowd is so
2: profoundly imbalanced. Right, right. And I think it's attributable to unconscious bias. Because when I had the numbers and I went back to the studios, you know, I'd say, can I talk to everybody? And uh, their jaws were on the ground. They were stunned. They had no idea. But wanted to change it. You know, there's been so much change um, just as a result of the meetings that we take that it's it's really uh, heartening. When it, This is a good example of what you're talking about. When I was doing Stuart Little, there's a scene uh, where there's a boat race with remote control boats, and I was watching as the assistant director was setting it up, and he'd choose a little boy and give him a remote and have him sit down on the edge of the water and then choose a little girl behind each boy, And I saw what he was doing and uh, I just went over and casually said, hey, do you think we could give half of the remotes to girls? And he like slapped his forehead and I was like, yes, of course, and switched it – it felt so stupid that he hadn't thought of it himself, but no, but I promise you nobody thinks of it themselves unless you know it gets pointed out. How does this uh
1: touch your life and
2: we'll leave aside your working life for a minute
1: um, but how do you how do you feel like it touches your home life I And mean, I'm sure you have three kids, right. I'm sure they watch film and television some anyway yeah. um
2: so how do you think about responding to it as a parent well uh what I've done from the beginning, and I actually recommend this uh, to folks who ask, is I watch with them whenever possible. I always, when they were little, I always watched everything with them. And, uh, you know, I limit what they see, of course, but they see what other kids see generally. Uh, but I can be their, um, uh, you know, window into the unreality of what they're seeing. I can point out things that will mitigate... That impact, so i 'll say, Hey, did you notice there's only one girl in that group? Why do you think that is, or um do you think girls could do what those boys are doing, or why do you think she 's wearing that if she 's going to go rescue somebody? That seems inappropriate uh, so they are actually um they are pretty media savvy now. I have to say, they notice it themselves. They point it out to me all. Do the they time.
1: get annoyed with you about it?
2: No, no. Although there have been times when I start to <laughs> lean over. My daughter's now fourteen. When I lean over to say something, and she says, "I know. I noticed. Not enough girls. I saw that right away." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> They're very attuned to it. Um, So when you –
1: once you and the scholars who work on these studies do the counting, Mm. um, what are the things that you then do with the numbers besides being kind enough to come talk to me on bullseye here? But uh, what else are you doing with with that information that you're gathering?
2: Well, the number one thing we do is meet with everyone who creates children's media. So we – Visit all the studios, all the networks, all the guilds, production companies, uh, you know, pretty much everybody. We try to saturate Hollywood, and we've been doing it a while now. So we visited most places many times and try to hit all their divisions. Like Disney, uh, I can't even count how many times we've been over there. They have us back over and over and over. They have lots of divisions, of course. Um, And they want us to talk to all of them. They are not at all skeptical, first of all. They believe in the, in the research. And uh, people who make kids media, I think, do feel a sense of uh, obligation to you know, make sure that it's, that it's good for kids. And uh, they had no idea they were sending such a negative message to kids about the value of girls. So we've seen a lot of improvement already. There's now two girl dogs on Paw Patrol.
1: That's a 100% increase.
2: Wow, well, that's breaking news from the parenting front lines, Peter <laughs> Davis. That's fabulous. Probably I had something to do with it. I have to guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you went up to Canada and you gave those Paw Patrollers a, a taste of your mind.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's You're exactly need a, right. A husky named Everest. Right, but it's much more efficient to use the research that way instead of trying to you know, educate the entire populace. It's efficient, and uh, they don't feel threatened. I never bust anybody publicly or talk about a particular movie that didn't do a good job. So um, it's a it's a great relationship. Tell me why
1: you've chosen that path. Why don't you bust people publicly or talk about particular shows that do a bad job like Paw Patrol?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Aww, Paw Patrol is a pretty good show. They just made a, a nice improvement. We have yeah, to encourage yeah, good modest work. Good improvements. Good work, Paw Patrol. <laughs> um, uh, because... Uh, I don't think in this case it would work that well. I was very aware that the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild—they all publish the numbers every year. They have women's committees on the, you know, on, in the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild and whatever, and um, the numbers never seem to move. In fact, the the percentage of female characters in films has been exactly the same since 1946. So we're talking about seven decades of stagnation, utter stagnation. So uh, I felt that um, I had to try a different kind of approach. And plus, I want to keep working for these people. So, you know, I, uh, I keep a very friendly relationship with everybody. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse
1: Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Gina Davis. She's been an advocate for gender equality and representation in Hollywood, and she founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. She also founded the Bentonville Film Festival, which promotes women and diverse voices in film. The festival takes place this week. I feel like I read a story about um, you showing up to work on Thelma and Louise, and... um, realizing that all of your notes about your character were were like a setup based on how can I use being nice to convince
2: uh, Ridley Scott to change this. Right. Uh,
1: Can you tell me about that?
2: Yeah. So we were going to have a meeting with just Susan and I and Ridley. I'd never met Susan yet. And just go over, do we have any thoughts or things we wanted to change or whatever. And uh, I had planned out everything that I wanted to change by deciding how I would bring it up. So this one, I could probably say this as a joke, but he might understand the truth behind it, or maybe I can make him think this one is his idea. This one I'll just bring up on the set quietly. This one I'll just do without telling him I'm going to do it. You know, and So all this kind of girly, non-threatening ways that I could make sure there wasn't the slightest possibility he would think I was... Arrogant, or had ideas of my own, basically, Um, uh, because my number one goal in life was that everybody liked me. I would never any problem, and uh, and so we show up, and I meet Susan. She's so impressive, and uh, sit down. And I swear, I think it was on page one, she said, uh, "Now, this first line I have, "Uh, I don't think I should say that. Let's just cut that line. How about that? Or we can put it on a page two, whichever you like. And my mouth was just hanging. I couldn't believe. And it's ridiculous that I would be in my 30s and feel like this. But I'd never seen a woman behave like that before. To just just say what she thought without first saying, you know, if you don't mind, maybe you'd like this or maybe you won't, you know, and just say it. And, of course, he reacted completely normally and said, oh, yeah, or or, no, let's do this instead or whatever. And uh, the entire movie was like that for me. It was just a total lesson in how to be yourself, how to actually, you know, just say things and uh, have an opinion and that, that it's okay.
1: Do you feel like you were afraid to do that when you were younger?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I was very shy, but I think I was shy because I didn't want to volunteer uh opinions or take a stance you know that i'll just I'll just be very shy and 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 uh that's how I'll be able to remain non-threatening and everything. It was definitely a part of my personality for long as my whole life has been an adventure in how to you know rise above that and conquer. it
1: uh if this is a weird question, don't answer it. But you're like six foot tall or so. Mm. Um, when you were like a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know when you got to be as tall as you are. But When I was a
2: baby. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you were like a teenager, were you comfortable in your body? And were you comfortable with the kind of just impact that you made being taller
2: than most of the other women that were around you? Uh, no. And a lot of the other dudes, and too? Mo- most of the other all dudes? All of the women, and the vast majority of the dudes I was taller than. Um, and, uh, uh, no, I wasn't comfortable. I think my fondest wish was to take up less space in the world. And, uh, uh, you understand that's a pretty unusual thing for a professional performer to say <laughs> I know, I know, but i really oh I really was uh, self conscious i didn 't want to try sports because I was afraid um of being laughed at or that you know that i I was sure I must be uncoordinated i just didn 't want to try anything and uh um yeah, I was I was very very self-conscious and then even the few times that I would let myself out of the box or something uh somebody would say uh oh you laugh too loud. That's very unattractive. You should you should laugh more quietly. And I'm like, how much more quiet can I get? Uh, but that was always the message. Don't wear those shoes. Don't. I made a lot of my own clothes. Don't wear clothes like that. Don't just just don't be you. Uh, and and I tried not to. What kind of clothes did you make? A lot of a lot of things. You know, I just have a very vivid imagination, and I made a lot of crazy stuff. I made things out of leather and suede, and I don't know. Give me examples, please. Okay. Uh, I one time made uh, you know those was really it was like a jumpsuit with really, really wide legs. That was kind of in style when I was in high school. Very, very it's wide. Sort of
1: like something Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Flare yes, would wear?
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. And one side was solid green and one side was uh, had a green background but had polka dots on it. And then, of course, the first thing somebody said was, you look like a circus clown. <laughs> and I had to get through the day without going home and changing. But
1: uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty impressed here. I'm all, I mean, I'm one thing that I'm impressed with is that for a young woman whose stated desire was to be smaller in the world— that you were making circus clown
2: clothing for yourself. Clown
1: pants, right.
2: Well, I know. It's I true. I mean, I want to
1: be clear. Like, I support circus clown clothing. <laughs> but
2: It's absolutely true. I don't know. I think I just wasn't good at blending into the. Like, I really wanted to, but uh, – or I was trying to thwart myself unconsciously or something. But I had, you know, I was so tall, but then I had platform shoes. I had great big ones with like a rainbow on them or something. And I remember at a church youth group meeting, uh, the the junior pastor asked the guys, what kind of girl, asked one of the guys, what kind of girl would you like, picture yourself dating? And uh, he said, well, I'm not sure. I just know she wouldn't be wearing those shoes. (laughs) I, I did, I went. I made it through high school without having a boyfriend. Let's just say. <laughs> <sighs> did you? Uh, uh, did you think of yourself as good looking? No, no, really not. Um, but I held out hope because my best friend's mother constantly told me I was pretty and that I would realize that later. And I thought she was crazy, but I had the secret hope that maybe adults will. Think I am somehow in this, in this distant future. Somehow <laughs> I'll become attractive. Were you performing in as a teenager? No, I, I didn't want to uh, be in the drama club or do. It was kind of a secret. I, I announced to my parents when I was three that I was going to be in movies, but uh, I kept it pretty close to the vest. It's really hard to get in movies without telling anyone. It is, but I figured. I'd had no clue that you could get in movies without going to college first. And so I figured I'll just study acting at college and then it'll all work out.
1: So what was the first time you uh uh you came
2: out as an aspiring performer? Uh it was the first time I performed, actually. Yeah, like when
1: did you when did you actually admit to the world that this was what you
2: wanted for yourself? Well, I was very into music. I was in every chorus and choir and uh, i played the piano and the flute and the pipe organ and uh i took my the music teacher in, in high school aside and said where do you go to college if you want to be an actor and he said oh boston university and so that was it for i didn't have to ask anybody else that, that that's what i wanted to do and eventually ended up there
1: Not like juilliard or something No, I mean... I mean, mean, no offense to Boston University. No,
2: no, but that's what he (laughs) said. It's just an
1: unusually specific...
2: It was. It was extremely specific.
1: At the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Right, right. BU.
2: Maybe that's what small town music teachers would think of rather than Juilliard.
1: There's even more when my interview with Gina Davis continues. Did you know she almost made it into the Olympics in archery? That is real. We'll talk about it after a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa, the mattress with over 11,000 five-star reviews and a mission to end bedlessness in America. The Lisa mattress was designed to provide support and pressure relief to every body type and sleep style for a deeper night's sleep. Lisa plants a tree for every order and donates a mattress for every 10 sold. Get $125 off, free shipping, and 100 nights to try the Lisa mattress. Go to leesa.com slash NPR. The Dead Pilot Society podcast brings you hilarious comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Aubrey Plaza, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Adam Scott, Molly Shannon, Busy Phillips, Tom Lennon, Anna Camp, Lori Metcalf, Felicia Day, Michael Ian Black, Adam Savage, Paul Shear, Ben Schwartz, Skylar Aston, Mae Whitman, Josh Molina, Ben Feldman, Nicole Byer, Jason Ritter, Sarah Chalk, Steve Agee, Jane Levy, Allison Tolman, Danielle Nicolette, Casey Wilson, Anna Ortiz, Lorraine Newman, June Diane Raphael, Kenan Chica, Weeks, Zach Knight, and Carrie Kenny Silver, John Ross Bowie, Jamie Denbo, Janet Varney, Matt and <laughs> the <laughs> And
3: many more. Listen
1: at maximumfun.org, iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. What's
2: unique about the human experience and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR1 or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Gina Davis, who's founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. And the Bentonville Film Festival. Was there, uh, was there a point um, when you were, uh, like late in your teens, early in your 20s, when uh, you realized that it was something that you
2: actually could do? Oh, well, embarrassingly, I was 100% positive the entire time. Absolutely really? positive. Yeah, that—that's what I was going to do. I had no backup plan. My parents were unsophisticated enough not to force me to have a backup plan. I mean, we had—we had no clue about anything to do with uh, anything like this. My parents were from Vermont, you know, very small town, grow your own food, build your own house kind of people. And uh, when I said I want to major in acting at at BU, they were like, oh, "Okay." As if I'd said something you could get a job in, you know, and uh, and then when I eventually did get a job, my first job was in Tootsie. It was my first audition, even. Uh, I, I remember I came home to visit, and my mom and the neighbor were talking. My, my best friend's mother were talking, and she was saying, "I can't believe it! Nobody can believe it. this is crazy." And my mom said, "What? She studied acting in college." <laughs> <laughs> So we were kind of like, yeah, well, that was what was supposed to happen. (laughs) Why don't we
1: listen to a scene, you, my guest Gina Davis, in Tootsie from 1982. So um, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character uh, has just been cast on a soap opera. Uh, He auditioned as a woman. And he, he meets April, one of the other actors on the show played by my guest, Gina Davis, and Dustin's uh, character speaks first. He's a bit flustered uh, by April walking into the dressing room in her underwear.
2: Oh, Hi. I'm sorry. Oh, that's, oh, jeez. Oh, it's quite all right. Uh, I'm April Page. How well, are you? you okay? my,
0: what a nice-looking table. Really? Yes, it's very okay. s- smooth, and that's a very uh, good idea, uh, a socket for a plug.
2: Yeah, well, we get everything. Yes, I see. Oh, just push all that stuff out of the way. Make yourself at home, okay? dum de dum
0: dum Yes. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, Miss Michaels, I forgot to
2: give you these. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, are these for today? Yes. Uh, they always throw stuff into the last minute. You could lose your mind around here. Oh, my goodness. What's wrong? I have to kiss Dr. Brewster. Oh, uh, yeah, he kisses all the women on the show. We call him the tongue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you got to the movie, yeah. I think that's the expression they use,
2: uh, did you feel like you could do it? I did. I did. I was a little uh I was a little nervous coming in. I didn't know I'd never, you know, obviously been on a set. I I thought they would expect me to know where to stand or how, you know what to do, but um but I was pretty confident. Yeah. I in fact uh we shot that the first thing on my first day and um <clears throat> while we were shooting that the take they used is where um uh, Dustin accidentally walked into the door, but uh, you know we just kept going, and I ad lib something or other. And uh, after that, Sidney Pollack said, C- "Come over here. Why are you not nervous?" <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> oh, am I? I well, I don't know. I, I just not. And he's like, "It's very strange, but it's great. But it's very strange that you're not nervous." Um, but I'm just—I've uh, never had nerves about it.
1: Did you feel by then like your appearance was not going to embarrass you?
2: Well, I had gone through a whole period uh, before that for a couple of years as a model um, because I didn't. No, nobody said it. Be you how you're supposed to get a job in the movies, and I went to New York instead of L.A. because nobody told me you should go to L.A. instead. So. Um, My big plan was I'll become a model and then they'll just offer me parts like Christy Brinkley was getting parts and stuff Uh, because, of course, it's much easier to become a supermodel uh, (laughs) than an actor. So uh, I didn't, but I did work. I did, you know, catalogs and uh, I was on the cover of New Jersey Monthly and – Congratulations! Things like that. Yes, I heard you. you
1: were something called a, a living mannequin. Is I was. That
2: true? I was. I pretended to be a mannequin in store windows. Where? And um, please explain that. Okay, so I was working at Ann Taylor on Fifth Avenue, and as a sales girl, and uh, we always dressed in the clothes of the store. And one day there was a there were mannequins sitting at a table, eating plastic lunch in the clothes and uh, there was one empty chair and I said dare me to go in the window to the other girls and uh, I didn't need them to dare me I, I just decided to go in the window and then just freeze and people stopped and to see what I was going to do and then I just didn't move I'd never thought about whether I had a, an ability with motionlessness or not but I just sat there and didn't move and uh, more and more people kept gathering and couldn't figure out because they hadn't seen me. St- walk in. They couldn't figure out what what they were looking at. And the other people were like, just wait, just wait. And then maybe after five or ten minutes, I moved. And uh, what? And and then more people gathered. Anyway, the manager came and said, Gina, what are you get out of the window. What are you doing? And then she saw the big crowd and she said, no, stay in the window. (laughs) And uh, so they hired me from then on to be uh, in the window on the weekends and then other stores did too. But anyway, modeling, plan. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yes, oh, because you asked me about, did I decide that I was attractive? Yeah. So what I decided was, because I was getting, you know, 200 dollars an hour back in the day was unbelievable to to be a model, and uh, I decided that I knew how to trick people into thinking I was attractive. So I had decided that I was attractive, but that it was uh, a trick.
1: I mean, here in the radio industry, we're known for our good looks. Absolutely. But, um less so than in, you know, movie stars. Right. Um, so it's just, it's like, it, it's really interesting to me, just this kind of like, what's it like? <laughs> 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 Basically. And I feel like there's, it would be weird if your, if your identity was tied up in how good looking you are. But at the same time, I think... Um, in any profession where uh you are looked at mm. um as part of your job uh, especially if you're a woman where you're looked at as part of your gender mm. um it is you know it must be very difficult to maintain some some distance between uh what you have uh done by choice and what is what has been given to you by nature and the weird, gross, dark stuff about people looking at you. Wow. Yeah, I know. And so That's the best I could do, too. <laughs> I'm a professional. I've been doing this 15 years.
2: Um, I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure I even... I'm
1: sorry. There may not have been a question. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's so- it sounds like partly what you were looking for was a way to... Uh, have an identity that included your own agency Hmm. that you were doing something
2: oh that's interesting i never thought about that
1: is that possible that's possible yeah should i check with your therapist
2: (laughs) (laughs) no but i will be (laughs) uh that's really interesting huh it's possible it's possible did you like being a movie star uh you know, I, here's what I think about uh, that, about being recognized and everything. Uh, it's For me, it's never been at a level that's uncomfortable, um, where I'd have to actually leave somewhere or, or avoid something because of being noticed. I, I go to restaurants. I go to the movies. I do anything I want um, and always have. Uh, and if p- people recognize me... Uh, they say something nice 99% of the time and uh, they just want to say, I like you or I like your work or whatever. And uh, this is a very nice thing and, uh, and a lot of times uh, it's a very positive thing. Somebody, I might be in a line and the person before me gets treated rudely and then all of a sudden I'm treated really nice. So I try to be very grateful that I get the good version of people most of the time. It seems like you've
1: also had some some of your landmark works, like Thelma and Louise, Owe oh, Their Own, uh, Tootsie. Those are all movies that, in addition to being great movies, are movies that um, uh, really impacted people's lives and mm-hmm. identities mm-hmm. in a way that... Um, I don't know what's – maybe Titanic didn't do as much. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have friends. I have a friend who's in – she's probably 30-ish and uh, plays baseball. And um, I don't think that there's like a more important thing in the world to her than a Mm -hmm. league of their own. Mm -hmm. Um, So it must be that when you – I presume that when you interact with people often, that's an element of it, that you've been in these things that that ended up being important to people.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. It's a very special thing, you know. I'm so grateful that I was in uh, uh, – played some roles that meant something to people. It was a huge change when uh, people started recognizing me from Thumb and Louise. Like we had no idea anybody was going to react the way they did. No clue. And uh, total surprise. And so before – you know, people might say, hey, the Beetlejuice, the fly, or whatever. This is my bug face. But, uh, uh, but you know, two great movies. Two but... great movies, right? But uh, when people recognized me from, from that movie, they wanted to talk about it. They had passionate ideas and feelings about it. And then League of Their Own, it was young women or girls uh, saying, I play sports because of that movie. And... Uh, And who knew that movies were going to live as long as they do now? You know, uh, Thelma and Louise is 25 this year and League of Their Own will be 25 next year. But I had the same number of women come up to me and say they play sports because of uh, League of Their Own as when it first came out.
1: You yourself took up sports as an adult. Yes. What were the circumstances?
2: I was a very late-blooming athlete. Yeah, so I was, like I said, I was very physically shy as a kid. And then I got cast in league of their own and I had to play the best baseball player anyone has ever seen and so uh, we had coaches you know very major league coaches very professional people and uh, and I trained you know as hard as I could tried as hard as I could and and they soon started saying wow you have natural athletic ability and I was like I do it was so exciting and uh, I learned how to play really good movie baseball uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then I had other parts where I, l- I learned special skills also like uh, Cuts Rhode Island and Long Kiss Goodnight, I learned sword fighting and pistol shooting and ice skating and taekwondo and um, all kinds of stuff And uh, and I was good at all of those too and so that's that's what made me think I want to take up a sport in my, in real life and not just the movie version of it,
1: you know. What was it like for you when you started trying to do that?
2: Well, embarrassingly, I, my coach says this is true. I don't remember this, but when I took it up at 41, at the first lesson, he says I asked, "How old is too old to go to the Olympics at archery?" <laughs> <laughs> Before I had shot the thing. Uh, so that's, yeah, I go too far with everything. But uh, I, I picked it up pretty quickly, yeah. I mean, it was, it was between when I took it up and was a semifinalist for the um, Olympic team, was two and a half years. So I, I picked it up pretty quickly. I mean, it took me five years. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow! Twice, it's twice, as, twice long. as long. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I guess I didn't have your natural talent. <laughs> as you know, as someone who you've you know you've described yourself as someone who wants everyone to like you, um, or wanted everyone to like you, um, were you able to uh, to quiet the kind of natural self criticism?
2: That's a, that's a very insightful question because that is a huge part of it. Uh, Soon after I started, uh, I had an excellent coach, Don Rabska, and uh, soon into the training, uh, I'd shoot and he'd say suddenly, what were you just thinking? And I'd have to think and I'd say, "I I was thinking I suck. And then another time he'd ask me and I'd say, I was thinking you think I suck. And I realized that I hadn't really been aware of my self-talk until then, and I became hyper-aware and realized that I was just constantly putting myself down every minute, uh, and not only just in archery but all day long, everywhere. And so I really tried to conquer it. And every time I would, I just became aware when I, particularly in archery, obviously first, uh, if I was thinking, "Oh, that sucked. I suck. I can't," I think no it didn't i'm doing the best i can i'll be better tomorrow i'm doing the best i can and uh it bled over into my real life too because it was so overwhelming the amount of negative self talk that i had going on uh it was like having an unnecessary person beating me up all day you know and i i, I know this, everybody you know has some degree of problem with this but it really changed my life because the intense degree that I had um, you know this inner critic going on do you feel
1: like the way that that change in your life that you like left you, you didn't act very much for a while you went and semi-qualified for the Olympics in archery mm-hmm. uh, and it had this pretty profound impact on the on the way that you lived your life right when you were a right. full-on grown-up right that's true uh, you'd been married several times before, but you uh, a lasting marriage with children mm-hmm. in your personal life and in your uh, in your professional life. This mm-hmm. commitment to, you know, right to doing this hard work to to,
2: you know, make this industry better. Well, it definitely has impacted everything um, in a positive way. Uh it's just made me so much more confident. Like uh, working with Susan Sarandon and having her be a role model, uh, you know, had a huge impact on me. Um, it all just made me feel like it's okay to be me. It's okay to take up space in the world. It's um, I feel comfortable speaking up and doing things that I think are important. So yeah, I think it had a big it had a big impact. Also archery afforded me an opportunity to experience success that was measurable rather than uh subjective, which everything is in this industry, but it was suddenly like, oh, it doesn't matter what I look like while I'm doing it or what I'm wearing. It's only the points and I'd never done something except schoolwork, you know, that was measured in numbers. And uh, and I loved that about it. I really, really liked that about it. Well, I mean, you say,
1: like, I think even above and beyond the part about it being objective rather than subjective, generally, mm. um, you know, I think that the, the experience of subjectivity for an actress is very different than it is for a... An, an actor mm-hmm. but for many other people you know a visual artist or something like sure. that whose work is seen because of sexism because so right. much of the work is tied up in you know in a sexist system and the and yeah. the male gaze
2: right absolutely
1: do you feel like the work that you're doing now is uh
2: changing things yes i do i'm very optimistic um Despite you're very optimistic based on experience
1: or very yes. optimistic by nature? No.
2: Well, I, I think by nature too, but uh but uh but no, I can be very uh you know um I can look at things very clinically, but uh but based on the experiences that we've had and the um the response that we've gotten, I'm very optimistic that no matter how intractable this problem has been and how invisible it's been, profoundly invisible, uh, it's now getting noticed and uh, that people are, are willing to make uh, changes. And so finally, I do believe that very soon we'll get um, momentum going as far as on-screen portrayals. I can't promise that we're going to have momentum behind the scenes um, anytime soon. It's, that's a much tougher nut to crack, you know, in the directing and writing and producing.
1: When you go and talk to uh, good-hearted, well-meaning people who agree that it's a problem and are surprised at the extent to which it's a problem, mm-hmm. uh, what do you ask them or to change or suggest that they change specifically? Like what are the actions that you would right. have them take?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that um, because it's very uh, – Specifically not, please make more movies starring a female character. I think if that was my goal, it would be very hard. It would be very hard slog because you've probably run into this, the concept that uh, women will watch men, but men won't watch women, so it's not our fault. We have to make everybody male in the lead characters. And uh, no matter how many movies starring women come out that are successes – we never seem to get momentum going. I think it's because there's this just fear that that's true and so we can't do that and those movies must be a one-off. So I don't say that. Um, What I say is whatever you're going to make, whatever you're already going to make, I'm not saying add a message, do do anything different. Whatever you're already making before you cast it uh, go through and change a bunch of first names to female and add some diversity in there too. And uh, wherever it says a crowd gathers, put comma, which is half female. And there you have it. You've got a gender-balanced script probably. It might be more interesting now that uh, some of the characters have had a gender swap because they won't be stereotyped, clearly, if they were meant to be a man. And uh, um, And it's easy and it's fun simple. Um, Ultimately, we want writers to write parts for women. uh, And it's great when they do write incredible, um, well-drawn characters uh, for women, but it doesn't happen anywhere near enough. And it'd be simple enough in so many, many cases. There's very few characters that couldn't be either a man or a woman.
1: Well, Gina Davis, I'm so grateful that you uh, came in to talk to us today. What a
2: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The other thing I say to them is uh, uh, figure out what part I'm going to play. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like to work. <laughs> Gina Davis uh,
1: founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender In media, um, and she's also founded the Bentonville Film Festival uh, in Arkansas, a film festival uh, dedicated to uh, promoting uh, gender equality and diversity in uh, film, which is uh, one of, if not the only, film festival in the world that guarantees distribution to its winners.
2: It is, it's the only one. Yeah, you get theatrical, uh, TV, digital, and DVD release? The whole nine yards. The, all of it, yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Gina Davis from 2016. Her work at the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media is still going strong. You can also see her on the new season of Grey's Anatomy on ABC. We have even more Bullseye after a break still to come. My interview with Jack Handy of Deep Thoughts, The New Yorker, and more. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, are you looking for a new comedy podcast? In which case, can I draw your attention to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? It's a fictional industry podcast for the Beef and Dairy Industries. It won Best Comedy at the 2017 British Podcast Awards and it features wonderful guests such as Greg Davis. To my knowledge, it's the only cow circus that's ever existed in this country. In rural Russia, every small town has a cow circus. Josie Long.
2: You should have a beef. Have a beef with them. I have a beef with you. I will have a beef with you. Come round my house and I'll have a beef with you.
0: And Andy Daly. That virus never existed. There was never any such thing as a mad cow disease. That was all an illusion that uh, Big Lamb came up with.
1: That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would recommend starting at episode one. Bye.
3: I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Jack Handy. He and I talked when I was recording the show in my apartment 10 years ago. A lot of people think Jack Handy is an imaginary person, but he is completely, totally real. He created Deep Thoughts. You might remember them from Saturday Night Live. The short, ridiculous bursts of fake wisdom were first published in the National Lampoon. Here's a Deep Thought from SNL.
3: And now, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. One thing kids like is to be tricked. For instance, I was going to take my little nephew to Disneyland, but instead I drove him to an old, burned-out warehouse. Oh no, I said, Disneyland burned down. He cried and cried, but I think that deep down he thought it was a pretty good joke. (laughs) I started to drive over to the real Disneyland, but it was getting pretty late. He also wrote some of my
1: all-time favorite SNL sketches, including what I think is literally my number one, tales of fraud and malfeasance in railroad hiring practices. But before he started writing comedy, he was a journalist.
3: The jump happened actually right here uh, in Santa Fe, in a way. I was living um, uh, up on Upper Canyon Road in uh, the upper 70s, and it was like a 150-year-old adobe house that was split in half. And I lived on one side, and Steve Martin, the comedian, lived on the other side. And this was before he was famous. He had uh, he was just starting to do his nightclub act and travel around and decided he wanted to base himself out of Santa Fe. And uh, he'd come over and play his banjo and stuff and got to know him a little bit. And I moved on to another journalism job in uh, San Antonio, working for the paper down there. And uh, one night I turned on... The Tonight Show and saw Steve Martin. (laughs) I'd go, hey, my neighbor with an arrow through his head. And next thing you know, he was the hottest thing going. And I sent him some of my humor columns and said, can I write for your act? And he said, yeah. How, what did you think of his act at the
1: time? It was very, uh, it it was very different from the uh, stand up comedy that had gone before it.
3: Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was not, uh, I'm not crazy about. Satire with a capital S, so uh it was uh it was just totally unabashedly silly, which was uh it was great. I loved it. I mean it was just absurdist.
0: <laughs> and here is one of Canada's
3: most famous landmarks. The world's largest umbrella mine. The mine now produces over seventy-five thousand umbrellas per year, making over one-tenth of the world's total umbrella production.
1: When you were still in uh, in in Texas and New Mexico, um, wh- what kind of impact did the the l- launch of Saturday Night Live have on you?
3: Oh, it was it was huge. Yeah, I remember it was a, it was a cult thing, like Steve Martin. And uh, uh, I think I even sent some uh, sent some humor columns of mine to Saturday Night Live at the time, and I got their forum letter back, which was something like. Uh, you can send us some nude photos, but, you know, we don't want this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, eventually Steve Martin recommended me to Lorne Michaels. When you started writing for Saturday Night Live,
1: it was when Lorne Michaels had returned to the show after leaving for a while, somewhat acrimoniously. Um, And it was kind of the first period of reinvention on the show. Um, or the the first Lorne Michaels headed period of reinvention on the show. Um, what was it like to be on this show that had this huge cultural cachet built in, but also had been you know almost run into the ground and clearly needed to uh, be a new thing? Um,
3: there was there was a lot of discord on the show. Uh, the The cast was sort of put together from people who were already known, like Robert Downey Jr. and Randy Quaid, and the ratings started out great, uh, but the critics attacked us like crazy. And then the ratings gradually slid all the way down, you know, to where I think there was some question about whether they were going to bring the show back or not.
1: Your writing uh, has such a strong voice. Um, do you feel like you found that voice very early in your career, or, or was it a long process?
3: I, I think it took a process. I mean, you start out just writing what... You think is funny and maybe imitative of other people, and then gradually you start realizing what you think is funny sort of fits into a character. Um, my stuff on Saturday Night Live is usually uh little boy oriented stuff then that 's sort of what I still write i mean about <laughs> about dinosaurs and cowboys and monsters and things like that, so I ended up writing things like. Uh, Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, and (laughs) Twinses the Cat and just, uh, you know, anything with dinosaurs and monsters and cowboys was usually mine.
1: We were talking on the email about uh, my favorite Saturday Night Live's, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketches ever and maybe my favorite that you wrote, although you've written a lot of great ones. Uh, which I just had to guess was yours based on the voice, which was tales of fraud and malfeasance and railroad <laughs> hiring practices.
3: Yeah. I think it was on pretty much the tail end of the show. But <laughs> uh, since, yeah, since you pointed that out to me, I reread it. That was a very silly piece.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I remember that. And it's like, what? That was like 1994. So that's 14 years later. And I wow. was, well, you know, 12 or 13 when it
3: aired. So Wow, you're a connoisseur. <laughs> I mean.
0: <laughs> Come in uh, Hi, I came about the job at the railroad Sir, I'm late Well, that's okay I just hope if we hire you You won't be late for work <laughs> <laughs> Sit down I've been uh, looking over your application And uh, everything seems in order I just have a few questions for you Okay Okay, have you ever driven a train? Uh, no, sir do you think you could get in a train locomotive and just by moving the switches and levers at random, make the train move down the track? Yes, sir, I believe I could. Mm-hmm. At a high rate of speed? I'd certainly give it a try, sir. Mm-hmm. And then do you think that you could stop the train, again, just by moving the levers at random? I believe so. Would you be willing to strike things that are on the track, like cars? That is no problem, sir. Mm-hmm. Do you have any gumballs or hard candy? I have a jawbreaker. Could I have it? Uh, Sure. Do you ever have one of those days when you just wake up and you think, what am I doing on this planet? Uh, Yes, sir, many times. And then you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go down the railroad yard and kill my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Sure do. Wait, uh, no? No? No. No's good? No. No's good. Are you familiar with ants? I've seen them in the movies. Would you be willing to... Let ants bite you. Yep. Yep. I think I could do that. Mm Mm-hmm. So how many ants would you let bite you? As many as it takes, sir. Ha! Well, all right. I think everything's pretty good here. (laughs) Hey, what are you doing in here? Hey, hey! This has been Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices, brought to you by Granny's Tomato Sauce. Other tomato sauces are thin and watery and should go to hell. And by Screw You, Pal Tires. If you can find a better set of tires, screw you, pal.
1: That was the SNL sketch Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices. It was written by my guest, Jack Handy, and it's the greatest thing of all time. Deep Thoughts uh, didn't start airing until uh, uh, the early 1990s, Um, but I know that you had uh, pitched the idea for a while, and in fact, it had kind of deeper roots maybe even than Saturday Night Live. Can can you tell us where where they came from?
3: Um, I started writing them way back. I mean, they were sort of parodies of those uh, kind of books that came out in the 70s that were sort of diaries, and they had, you know, sensitive diary kind of stuff, and It started out as kind of a parody of that, and then it kind of took on a character of its own. And I had them in National Lampoon and uh, a college magazine called Ampersand that I'm not sure, but I don't think it's around anymore. Um, And then actually Michael Nesmith, the monkey guy, uh, put them on his show. It was another brief sketch show in primetime. That's actually a good show called Television Parts. Uh, but i couldn 't get them on saturday night live and and i couldn 't get them published uh you know no one wanted to publish them, and so I thought, well, the way to get things published is to get them famous and get them on t v and so uh, i started pushing in to get them on Saturday Night Live, but you know they didn 't want they didn 't really want a writer to have his name on things you know they uh, they didn 't like that, so they fought me on it for a while, and I sort of bided my time. And wrote a lot of good sketches for them, and then finally they said, "Well, okay, we got to give them give him this as dessert." Um, And of course, the irony is that people think Jack Handy is a made up name, so (laughs) it it didn't work at all. Anyway, (laughs) uh, I still go into like a hotel or something, and people will go like, "Oh, you have the name from that as the same name as that guy on Saturday Night Live," and I'll go like, "Oh, that's me," and they go isn't it funny the same name as that guy on Saturday Night Live they, they just don't believe you <laughs> that you're the person and now Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy to me clowns aren't funny in fact they're kind of scary I wondered where this started and I think it goes back to the time I went to the circus and a clown killed my dad.
1: It feels like deep thoughts are, um, in a way, the the apotheosis of this um, of this character perspective that you often write from as as Jack Handy. Um, how would you? I mean, besides being interested in in cowboys and Martians, um, how would you describe that character?
3: Um, it's a character who. Um who thinks he's normal and wants the other people to empathize with him is normal I think but is actually sort of psychotic and uh, you know dangerous <laughs> but uh but has a logic that you know he thinks is is quite normal so he, he's he's not he's not a uh an insane person but he's just sort of a, a psychotic person <laughs> <laughs> How exactly do you draw the line between the two? Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah it, it can't be a per. You know, he can't do things that like, you know, shooting people or something. Or, or, uh, but, it, you know, if he says sort of mean things to kids and makes them cry, he thinks that's Perfectly acceptable. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I heard you talking to uh, my Public Radio International colleague, Faith Saley. Oh. Um, and uh, I heard you tell her something that really blew me away, which was th- that uh, the deep thought, which is about uh, telling a child, th- driving <laughs> a child to Disneyland, but instead driving the child to a burnt out warehouse and mm-hmm. telling him that Disneyland burned down. Right was inspired by something that actually happened to you?
3: Yeah, it was actually. my. I guess I was feeling mean, but uh, my sister was out <laughs> with her son, who was about six or something, and for some reason it just popped out. He was going, oh, I want to go to Disneyland. Oh, I want to go to Disneyland. And I was going, oh, didn't you hear Disneyland burn down? And he was like, he started crying. <laughs> it felt really bad. But uh, yeah, that was based on a real incident.
1: What did your sister think of that?
3: Oh, I'm sure she was mad at me. Is <laughs> <laughs> she just used to it? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> uh, but he's now a grown man, and so uh, it's probably scarred him somehow, but uh... And now, deep thoughts by Jack Handy. When you go for a job interview I think a good thing to ask is if they ever press charges.
1: I've heard that your writing process involves throwing a ball against a wall over and over indefinitely.
3: Is that a fair characterization? That is a total lie. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it actually is true. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I got... Uh, well, actually, I write sketches that way, too, but Deep Thoughts... Uh, throwing a ball against laying on my back and throwing it against the ceiling sort of over and over again. And then uh, in the case of deep thoughts, you write down, write them down. And then when you've got a huge stack of them, you go through and start weeding. But uh, yeah, that's how I do it. I sort of imagine
1: it as being like, I, I once read an article in the New Yorker about how David Milch wrote uh, Deadwood. And it involved him being like high on back pain medication and just like this cadre of uh of writers surrounding him transcribing what he like his his mad ramblings in iambic pentameter that's where i imagine uh that's where i imagine deep thoughts come from <laughs>
3: i wish it was that uh you know flowing but usually it starts and stops uh that would be nice if I could just get loaded and start rambling, but uh, <laughs> just get your cats to transcribe it. Yeah, really, really. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's. I don't know. I I think somehow the deep thoughts have this. Uh, uh, there's this idea that they're easy to write because you see fake ones a lot, um, but for me anyway, they're hard to write, and you know, it's they don't flow easily, so.
1: How how many do you how many do you write for every one
3: that you've published? If if I wrote, you know, if I wrote six or seven in a day, that would be a good day. And then of the ones that are published, probably nine out of ten I throw out. So um, that may be surprising when people see some of them. <laughs> they may go, wait a minute, the other ones are must be pretty horrible <laughs> but uh yeah there, it, there's a big attrition rate on them were there any that you're, were your like particular faves uh i guess i've always sort of liked the one about uh um i like the one about the, uh if you if you fall off the sears tower go limp because <laughs> uh maybe people will try to catch you because you look like a dummy because hey free dummy Hey, free dummy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know yeah, it, it twists back on itself kind of twice there.
1: <laughs> Man, I've spent a lot way too much of my life thinking about the phrase,
3: Hey, free dummy. Hey, free dummy. <laughs> Copyrighted by Jack Handy. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Jack Handy from 2008. What's he up to lately? He is still writing for The New Yorker. He's still putting out books. His latest book is Please Stop the Deep Thoughts. which just came out last year. And seriously, check handy. Please do not stop the deep thoughts. One of the best things of all time. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. So there's a website. It's called Zombo.com. When you visit Zombo.com, you see a sort of lo-fi picture of a flower, like really lo-fi, like somebody made it with some circles from Microsoft Paint. And it's sort of animated, like it blinks. And at the top, there's this header. It's this key lime green gradient and zombo.com written in a font that looks like you would use it for a preschool carnival. Oh, and uh, one other thing on zombo.com. It plays this sound. Welcome
0: to Zombocom. This is Zombocom.
3: Welcome.
0: This is Zombocom. Welcome to Zombocom. You can do anything at Zombocom.
3: Anything at all.
1: That, by the way, just goes on and on. One time I made it to the end but it seriously took me leaving my computer and coming back. Anyway, this website, it's been the same for coming up on 20 years. This same strange, beautiful dream from when the web was a baby and everybody was full of promises. I guess it's not a hilarious joke exactly. I mean, even in 1999, it wasn't exactly Oscar Wilde and those Flash, splash pages that used to be on websites, the thing that it parodies, I guess, don't even really exist anymore. But I still visit once in a while, just to make sure there's something on the internet that'll always be the same. It's nice to visit an old friend. That's my outshot.
0: Welcome to Thamblecar. This is Thamblecar. Welcome to Zombo Car. Welcome. This is Zombo Car. Welcome to Zombo Car. Welcome to
2: Zombo Car.
1: That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. A couple weeks ago, the lake in MacArthur Park, MacArthur Park Lake, was bright green. Now it is kind of a yellowish green brown. And um, I have to say, the staff here at Maximum Fun is concerned about the color of the lake. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries and by the band themselves. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all our interviews, clips, and highlights there, too. And on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.